Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Maren McKinnon. Maren is a science communication academic and practitioner who researches perceptions of STEM and the relationship between science, media, and the public. Join us as we talk about her journey from marine sciences to science communication research and perceptions of women STEM communicators. afternoon, Marin. Thank you so much for joining me today on Steam Powered. I'm really happy to have you on today to talk about all these very, very interesting topics. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Wonderful. So, you know, we'll start with the usual um, from the beginning. Uh, you started off in marine science and then went into journalism and now science communication, working on the perceptions of science and technology issues. But you know, how did you get from there to here? <laughs> <laughs> It's a very convoluted path and it's, it always, everyone else says, oh, hey, did you have a career plan? It's like, yeah, but every plan I made didn't work out, but somehow in the end it all came out in the wash. So yeah. I guess um, I began in marine science and that was very much, I grew up on the central coast of New South, of New South Wales and uh, I was near the beach and I loved the beach. It was my happy place, still is my happy place. Um, and I just wanted to learn more about that environment and also you know I wanted to help protect and conserve it and so I was halfway through my honours year uh, and I was doing research on intertidal snails a, a party animal I know <laughs> <laughs> um, I was counting these snails uh, on one of my one of my sites and I could see these two kids it was an older sister I think she was probably about maybe I don't know, eight or ten and she had a younger brother about two years younger and I could see them watching me like, what is she doing? Cause I'm just, you know, squatting down, <laughs> counting these things, making notes, counting more things. And they were just like, you're a crazy lady. So eventually they couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't hold it anymore. They said, okay, what are you doing? So I said, oh, I'm, I'm counting these animals. And, animals, what animals? And so we had this big conversation about all the different types of snails that I was finding and then the algae that they'd eat and what lived where. And so then they were convinced that I wasn't insane and they went off and <laughs> were going to do their usual usual stuff, just sort of exploring. And then the little boy, being a little boy, started kicking at some of the barnacles and his sisters come charging over and smacked him upside the head and said, don't do that, you'll hurt the animals. It was like this real oh light globe moment for me. Of, I've just changed perceptions of what's here and that's influenced a response. Yeah. I wonder if there's something to this. So it was like, <laughs> um, at the time I was kind of like, I really don't know if a career in research is, is what I'm after and, and jobs in the, in the field that I was interested in were really, really hard. And even if I did manage to get one, I will probably end up earning less than I currently was as a waitress. So as wow. serendipity would have it, um, I saw an ad in the newspaper, a physical newspaper, so I'm revealing my age, <laughs> <laughs> which said, do you have a science degree? Do you love to travel? And then why not join the science circus? So I ended up moving to Canberra to nice. uh, yeah, do a degree in science communication, which also had me traveling around Australia doing science shows in schools and community centers. And that was just the, the gateway drug after that. It was like, yep, science communication, that's where it's at. So that's nice. how I ended up here. 
But you don't just focus on kids now anymore, do you? No, I don't want, I, yeah. I don't play with children anymore. No, <laughs> I've had my fun. <laughs> You've had your fun. So, like, tell me about the science circus. Like, how, what what did that involve? So it's changed quite a lot. So when I went through, it was a graduate diploma. Now it's a one-year master's program. So it's very academically intense. Um, but back when I did it, it was learning how to develop shows and programs that would suit non-specialist audiences. So science communication really can be boiled down to two really simple rules, which is know your audience and then know what you know your goal. So who are you talking to? And then once you've spoken to them, what do you want them to do, think, feel, remember? And once you have those two things, then the rest of it kind of falls into place. It sounds really simple and straightforward. <laughs> so, like that. so straightforward. So it's easy. <laughs> so <laughs> it was very much about the, the, the practical realities of doing that and going out and trialing it in schools. It's kind of like the world is your laboratory and kids have no nice. filter. If they don't like something, they're going to tell you. So it was a steep learning curve, but you learn so <laughs> much. Um, and it's, I think it probably still does inform a lot of what I do in, in lectures and you know, more formal lectures in, in, in education yeah. today. But um, so, yeah, that we had a little bit of the, the theoretical side of things. Now that has been uh, strengthened and expanded quite a lot. But a core part was that traveling around Australia, actually doing what it says on the tin. So engaging people with science and um yeah, just sort of changing their perception of who a scientist is and what a scientist does and where a science career can take you. That's awesome. Like, yeah, just being able to bring all of that gateway knowledge to these kids and, you know, trying to evoke more of those responses like you had with that little girl on the beach. That's, that's very cool. So from there, you're now talking about more about issues relating to science and technology. So what led to doing this kind of work instead of more of the outreach specific stuff? Well, I found that I, I worked at Questacon, so the National Science and Technology Centre here in Canberra for a while. They're the partner with the Science Circus along with the ANU. Uh, and at that time, Shell was also one of the partners. And so outreach was fun and, you know, I'm young and single and <laughs> no nothing tying me down. So I was like, yeah, let's travel. And so did a, did a couple of years with an outreach program um, and traveled a lot, but then quickly realized it was like, actually, you know what, living out of a bag for this long, I think I'm done. But during <laughs> that process, it was very much um, learning what else the science communicator does as well. So I had then this period of about 10 years, I suppose, where I really just explored science communication in lots of different facets. So yeah, uh, went and worked for, um, what used to be um, the Australian Science Festival Limited. So we used to have this big science festival during National Science Week each year. So I uh, went and did that, went and um, yeah, changed my status from single to not single. And as a, as a consequence of that, ended up moving overseas, um, doing some more development focus work, but certainly still in the teaching and learning space. But while I was over there and the work that I'd done leading up to that, it was kind of like, well, if I want to be an effective communicator, I need to know how to engage with the media because they're a crucial channel for not only getting information out, but quite often public perceptions about people, places, things, media yeah. very much form, help form that and, and help to create the, the norms and the stereotypes that 
um, exist and persist. So I was like, okay, well, I'll learn how to, I'll learn a bit more about journalism. And so I did a master's of journalism um, by distance education while I was overseas. And it was fantastic. I learned a lot. Probably the key takeaway message being, I don't want to be a journalist. I can't <laughs> like that. <laughs> do that all day every day and have this relentless cycle like I, I like I like talking to people hearing their stories but yeah definitely the the writing the writing the hard news articles uh, quickly day in day out was like no that's not for me thank you it's been real but no um, <laughs> and then uh, I don't know I just sort of yeah kept exploring um, went back to outreach except then I was sort of running one of the programs rather than being one of the presenters so doing a little bit more on the training and development side of things and um, moved overseas again and uh, was finishing my PhD at that time um, so I had a baby and a thesis at the same time and honestly Fun. I I would do it the same way again. Once you have a child, you know how precious time is. So when you have 20 <laughs> minutes, you are working that 20 minutes for everything. It's awesome. Uh, exhausting. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Hyper-focused, yeah. Hyper-focused, <laughs> yes. Um, but after I'd finished that, it was I ended up falling into some casual um, academic work overseas, uh, going back to my marine science roots because they wanted uh, someone who could lecture in environmental science. So the mm -hmm. materials were all there. They just wanted someone to be able to develop it and deliver it. So it was kind of all of my skills and experience led me to that. I got into academia and went, oh, this is a bit of all right. I kind of have fun with this. <laughs> and um, yeah, then uh, a job was advertised here at the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at the ANU, where my whole science communication career began. And yeah. jobs coming up here never happen, so I went, oh, I'll have to apply for that. And it was for a role teaching science in the media. So everything I'd done had equipped me. It is, yeah, and it did. So my mother was like, I can't believe that that career background actually worked for you. <laughs> She's from a while. She's like, you're changing so jobs again? Faith. What are you doing? <laughs> I was like, it's all right, mum, it'll be fine. <laughs> and it was, so there. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it just it's a perfect confluence of all of those experiences. So now you're working on the science communication and in the area of trying to communicate all of these issues. But, you know, your focus is now on perceptions. And what sort of work have you been doing in that area, kind of research-wise? So I have, I guess, two, two kind of mainstream streams of research. So one is that relationship between science or scientists, media and publics. So how, how people respond to and react to issues that are presented in the news and, and how the presentation of news influences public perceptions. And then I guess uh, both separately and related to that is the perceptions of who does STEM, uh, like science, technology, engineering, maths kind of research. Um, and you know, the, the characteristics that make you a successful scientist or engineer and um, how the media can also contribute to those, to those perceptions and stereotypes as well. And so the two of those things together have started to to merge and mingle and then unpick and come back. But there's there's a un, it's both a blessing and a curse. There is a lot that is very very topical <laughs> about uh, gender stereotypes and inclusion and intersectionality and all of those things, um, and a lot that we really don't know. So yeah. Yeah. 
that's amazing. Yeah, a uh, little side story. It's kind of related to why I'm doing this. Um, when I was in computer, I did computer science mm-hmm. for an undergrad. I did an honors degree. My research was in the psychometric assessment of potential computing students for the purpose of encouraging recruitment and retention. It was trying to figure out, you know, what kind of stereotypes we had, you know, do people who like Star Wars and Star Trek happen to make better computer scientists? I don't know. So it's just kind of stuff like that. It was, yeah, it was about psychometric assessment. So it was trying to figure out whether there was a way, because we were having heaps of people just bailing out on the degree um, for various reasons, too hard, not what they expected. And they were areas which probably should have been delved into in more detail, but I didn't want to do a PhD. Um, so, fair call, fair call. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it, it did make me think about, you know, all of these reasons for, you know, what people had expected coming in, because when I was tutoring, we had people coming into the infotech and CS and they just thought, I'm going to be Bill Gates. I am going to spend my time at uni on instant messenger, chatting to friends and playing online games. And totally. Like, That's oh, how you get a degree. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, yeah, sure. You know, if you want a games degree, wrong uni, different type of games degree. But, you know, people have these ideas about what science and tech is, and they're not necessarily accurate. And it's just that because they don't have that experience of understanding what's out there. And when we were at school, it's, I mean, it's better now, obviously it's been a couple of decades, but you know, before then it was just what people told us was the experience of STEM. And, you know, we get taught the core of, you know, biology, chemistry, physics, and there's not much room to expand to where that can really take us truly. So you get, you know, a lot of people dropping out, not understanding people finding things are hard because they don't know that there's other routes and like yourself, finding other ways of getting to where we want to be. So yeah, that's, yeah, all of that's very interesting to me, but I digress. (laughs) Coming back to, you know, what you're working on. My friend told me about this paper. She is the editor of the Helix magazine uh, by Syro. And she was saying, you know, I saw this paper of yours and of, of um, Marin's and, you know, I'm kind of concerned now because how does that impact what I do? And it was the perceptions of stereotypes applied to women who publicly communicate their STEM work. And just that paper title alone is like, oh goodness, what's this going to lead to? <laughs> so what prompted you and your co-author Christine O'Connell to write about this specific issue? I mean, you've already talked about perceptions in the media, but what prompted a specific paper? I think at the time, um, so Christine, Christine and I were, were both women in academia and women in STEM, and we were seeing, um, seeing and experiencing a lot of the same stories and the same issues. So both of us were involved in working with STEM researchers and running workshops and training them, or providing them with more um, tools and techniques to be more effective in communicating their work. And some of the stories that we started hearing and just a few of the throwaway comments, it was kind of like, there's something going on here. And I mean, there were other people who had, there's already a body of research. I mean, even you and your honours degree, like I think people are still trying to find answers to, to some of those questions that you're posing and things that um, you were interested in. I think we still don't have a lot of answers to some of those things. Yeah. So Christine and I just started talking. We, went, yeah, we should explore this. 
And so we thought, okay, well, while we're exploring, maybe we can do something to help women deal with these kinds of stereotypes that we're hearing all the time as well. Um, I don't know, like there's always, I think subconsciously uh, or sometimes even extremely consciously in society, you are told to behave and act a certain way and often those are quite gendered and so watching how they how these um, so social norms I suppose are implemented and then impact upon how you how you function as a human being in your professional and personal life that was something that we're like it was it was interesting for us to just to delve into a little bit more so we ran these focus groups and uh and then did a workshop for the participants afterwards but i often describe it as research that makes you drink because <laughs> <laughs> we would say okay you know just you've got 10 minutes or 20 minutes or something what are all the stereotypes that um, you have applied or you've heard applied or have had applied to you when you're speaking publicly about your work and get these you know massive sheets that are full of words and phrases and uh, we ran these um, in lots of different locations so I think we had something like uh, close to 30 different nationalities represented um, we'd done these studies uh, these workshops in lots of different settings so we had people from a whole range of different backgrounds career stages um, some in academia private enterprise public research organizations but the same things just kept coming up again and again and again and it was just like oh my god so, <laughs> looking at it and going okay well you know these are all of the stereotypes that are applied but then talking to women about how can we reclaim ownership how can we flip these stereotypes and take something like um you know the most common ones were bitchy bossy and emotional and it's kind of like none of those things by themselves have an immediately positive connotation but you can flip it so if you are emotional it means that you have the capacity to recognize more than two emotions in yourself and others <laughs> <laughs> and being able to do that that also means that you are more empathetic as a team member or as a leader and you can use that to help get better results for the team and the work that you produce so being emotional is doesn't have to be a negative thing it can actually be a really positive thing uh, and you can use that to advance your career and and those of others so so learning how to to flip and reframe these stereotypes but I think probably one of the the biggest things for us as well was we'd go through all of these stereotypes with with each of the groups and we'd say okay we've just gone through all of these and how to flip them but show of hands and let's be honest how many of you have also applied these stereotypes to other women and you know, christine and i would put our hand up because you know we have and every single time it'd be like 99 percent of the people mostly women would put up their hand so we're on the receiving end of this but we're also perpetuating it amongst ourselves so it's yes. quite often you see that there's um you know it's it's men doing bad things or it's it's women who you know the queen bee phenomenon they're not helping each other it's a little bit of both and it's yes. a it's a societal problem that needs a societal solution recognizing 
all genders and everybody has a role to play. Yeah, like men aren't the only ones who are influenced by all of these cultural norms that are inflicted on us. You know, we're going to be on the receiving because we're the ones who have to meet those norms or expected to meet those norms. So of course we're going to use that as a baseline for judgment on other people too at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, aside from discovering the things that make you drink, uh, was there anything particularly surprising in what you learned from that? Oh, look, all of it was quite surprising. <laughs> Just the, the scale and scope and the, the number of stereotypes that get applied. I think uh, something like about a dozen different categories. And there seems to be this tightrope upon which women have to walk. And you can't be too old, but you can't be too young. You can be pretty, but you can't be too pretty. You can wear makeup, but you can't wear too much makeup. You can't, yep. you know, try too hard or not try. It's there's this constant sense of there's an equilibrium that you somehow need to innately sense and then meet. <laughs> no wonder I'm tired, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a lot of mental load right there. <laughs> it is, yeah. So it's kind of these expectations which which are placed upon us from society, from um, the organisations, from ourselves. And I think a lot of that contributes to a lot of the stress, the anxiety, the general um, decrease in overall well-being that we can experience. So I, I know from my own experience, the expectations I had of myself and the story I was telling myself uh, was very different to what was the actual fact. So I drove myself to almost, um, you know, an emotional and, and near physical breakdown, trying to meet these expectations, which I thought everybody had of me, but actually they didn't. So yeah, it's kind of like that old saying, you know, that you like beating your head against the brick wall, but it feels so good when you stop. <laughs> Definitely. So what brought you to your realization that this was not the true perception that you had, that this was partly self-inflicted? I was part of a program called Homeward Bound, which is a leadership program for women in STEM. And one of the um, processes that they get you to go through is using this um, diagnostic. And normally I was one of those people who was like, oh yeah, diagnostic personality types, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's all very scientific, great. <laughs> um, this one, I think because it also came with someone talking you through it and it really forced you to hold up a mirror to yourself and go, hmm, okay, maybe I do have a role in this after all. Interesting. <laughs> so that was, that was incredibly liberating and it did have an immediate impact of, wow. I can stop this. I can change this right now. And so I'm, I'm better able to recognize when I'm doing it to myself. It wasn't a silver bullet. So I'm constantly <laughs> a work in progress, but being able to recognize that in other people now, like some of my students or even my daughter, that's been incredibly useful. Just to try and stop it before it becomes fully ingrained or before it starts to do a huge amount of damage. Like just looking at the war warning signs and going, hmm, actually, let's, uh, let's just, are we dealing with fact or fiction here? Let's, let's, let's <laughs> go back to the source. Sometimes you just need that external kind of 
factor to make you really reflect on the way that you deal with things. And yeah, it's hard just because of all the expectations and all the perceptions and all the things that we feel that we have to be able to meet and qualify. And yeah, it's, yeah, you need, you need some perspective. You do. And you need, you need someone not in your immediate circle to tell you. So my, my husband and my mother have been saying to me for years and I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. So somebody else comes (laughs) along and it's like, it's not fine. Okay. You were right. Shut up. (laughs) Yes. Definitely need someone like that. (laughs) (laughs) So we call it getting a critical ally. So someone who is invested in wanting you to succeed but not so close that you have that personal, you know, emotional investment. It's, it's, it's purely transactional. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. You need that honest friend who, yeah, will just tell you things as it is. <laughs> so from your findings, what were your conclusions about how we can move forward from this? Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> it's, it's not one clear path. It's messy and multifaceted. So yes. It really does come down to women can do things. Women aren't broken. We don't need fixing per se. We can certainly start to reclaim some of these stereotypes and and flip them and monitor our own behaviour towards other women. But this needs a societal response. So we need to look at how we're talking about uh, gender and inclusion and... Um, who does certain things and the the stereotypes that exist. So even within schooling, there's certainly more attention being paid to it now. But even, um, I guess, if if you look at the toy department in, like the toy section in like any kind of department store, all all the girls' toys are pink and they're to do with animals and, um, you know, maybe medicine perhaps, but possibly the nurse rather than the doctor. Uh, whereas the boys get the blue stuff and it's all about you know the engineering, the jets, the cars, the this, the that. And it's that's really, really subtle, but it's also constantly reinforcing that girls go to the biology and the caring and nurturing fields and boys, you go off with engineering and... Um, and the analytical and the, the analytical. harder topic. Exactly. And then sometimes subconsciously or unconsciously, teachers will push boys more towards the harder disciplines and and push the girls more towards the softer. Um, But it's just these realizations almost at every single step along the way that we need to address it within the family. We need to address it in our consumer behavior. We need to address it in schools. We then need to address it in all of the organizations that we work in, in our workplace policies, it's we need to rebuild from the ground up and that's really going to take time. But by the same token, if we want to address a lot of the the issues that we're facing as a global society, we need to be drawing upon the skills, ideas, expertise, innovation, creativity of the entire population, not just one dominant cultural group. And that tends to be white male style. So (laughs) (laughs) it's about harnessing everybody 
Uh, and you know, research has shown that the more diversity you have in the team, um, the more creative it is, the more innovative it is, the better it performs. Uh, if you achieve at least 30% female leadership um, in organisations and in boards, then you better performance in terms of financial outcomes, actual performance indicators. I mean, what have we got to lose except for yeah. Yeah, a shift in the status quo? Yeah, exactly. Um, it, there's really no true downside to this. You're only going to be able to help innovate better and, you know, expand our knowledge and expand our capabilities by being able to draw from more of these people who want to contribute as well. But, you know, that's about trying to get, I guess, more people in, but how does that change? How does that impact the way that we change the perceptions? I mean, we're still going to be dealing with for a while, the issues where we're bitchy, we're bossy, you know, we're too outspoken, you know, that that's still, you know, a big part of, I guess, the psyche and the way that we do interact with each other, you know, as women or as men interacting with women. Yeah. How do you go about, you know, getting kind of all of that moving? I don't know how to phrase that. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's good because I'm not entirely sure how to answer it really. But, yes. um, I think it's it's certainly removing that surprise of seeing, um, you know, a woman or a person of colour in a particular role. Uh, so I think if you said um, you know, doctor or nurse, you have a very clear image in your mind about what the doctor looks like and then what the nurse looks like. And so it's about if we make these these fields and these disciplines more inclusive, then it'll become more normal to have a variety of different people working in these roles. So we take away that, oh, I didn't expect that kind of factor. Yeah. And it becomes more natural to expect exactly. that the capabilities and the competency is going to be the same regardless of the gender and the appearance and the background. Exactly. And it's, I think this quote's been attributed to everybody. I think one of them is um, Sally Wright, who is a NASA astronaut. And, you, know, you can't be what you can't see. So having these, having these role models, but acknowledging, and that, that was one of the core things of, of our paper, is one of the solutions to increasing the perception of what is normal within STEM disciplines is to have these highly visible role models who are like, oh, so you know, a scientist can look like this or an engineer can look like this. But acknowledging that by putting these people in this role model position, we are also opening them up to these all of these other stereotypes Criticisms. which they might have to yeah, deal with as well. So making sure that we're supporting these people who are doing this very important work and just making sure that being the face of a discipline or an organization or a particular research project isn't something that's also going to cost them personally um, in in terms of you know having having criticism leveled at you yeah and that's that's very difficult right now because you look you're spending more time on social media <laughs> um, I try not to. <laughs> I know. It, it's, mm, anyway, other yeah. things. Uh, but you see all these, you know, amazing people, men and women, speaking up about what they do, being very passionate about their topic. And, you know, you start seeing 
the responses that you get, the reply guys, the, you know, people trying to explain or mansplain what it is that they do for a living. And, you know, it, for some of them, you can see every now and then it's like, no, this, this has been too much. I have to take a step back because, you know, they're being penalized for wanting to share something that they truly love and they, they truly want other people to love as well. And, you know, seeing in this paper about how we do reflect negatively on people who do this, it's, it's, it's really tough because you want them to speak up more, but you don't want them to end up getting the threats and the hostility. And, you know, it's, it's almost a thankless kind of job to do this because a lot of them do it for the love, not for the money. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it is, yeah, social media is great because you can have so many other people in the conversation that you normally wouldn't ever have. But that's also the downside of social media because suddenly everyone who has an opinion has a platform. And some of these opinions are not, not helpful, not constructive. And there are people who just want to jump on there and make other people's lives miserable. Um, yeah. which says more about them and the quality of their own happiness rather than you know the person that they're trying to act against so i guess in some ways there is a role for for everybody i mean the standard you walk past is the standard you accept so yeah. if you see these kind of comments or if you see this undesirable behavior occurring think about ways where you can shift the conversation back to something more appropriate more constructive more helpful or if you if you are comfortable call it out like it i think people need to be told when they're crossing a line um mm. and sometimes having somebody else step in and go actually don't don't be a just don't be a bad person um what are you what good are you contributing <laughs> right now yes. um yeah i think that can also be very powerful and sometimes very healing for the person who's on the end of the criticism. Yeah, we just all have to you know, step up and support each other when all of this kind of stuff happens. And it's happening more and more as well, mm. just because we've got more time. <laughs> yeah. So with the workshops that you ran, when you were collecting this information and you know, it wouldn't have been at the point where you had all the data to analyze, but you were talking to them about switching and uh, reframing a lot of these negative connotations what sort of feedback did you get from the group as a response and did they respond in a way uh, uh, reflecting on their own perceptions and their own behaviors yeah there was a lot of there was a lot of comment of you know this was this whole discussion was really good like i've there's not a lot of time and space carved out for for people to actually talk about their experience so there's a lot of stuff on professional development and this is how you do this but actually being able to go hmm you know what this was really unpleasant <laughs> a lot of people don't want to <laughs> the unpleasant things um so i think there was probably a lot of the a couple of light globe moments going oh actually yeah i don't have to ex accept the stereotype as it's given to me. I can reframe it and yeah, I, I don't have to accept the label. I can, I can write my own label um, or I can be comfortable with, with whatever label you want to throw at me because I don't see it that way. Um, 
and I think there was probably probably more awareness of the little things that we that we tend to do as well and you know she said applying broad stereotypical strokes but <laughs> um you know using the words like just you know, I'm just emailing or I, I just want to suggest that's using that in your own language you're diminishing yourself and the quality of your ideas and being aware of that you know the first step is admitting you have a problem so <laughs> being able to identify it in your practice and go I'm going to stop doing this now I'm going to pay close attention to this and only this and what I do because if for three weeks if you try and fix all of the problems at once it, it gets too overwhelming so you, you can pick the yeah. thing that the thing that you want to work on most and it might be removing the word just from from emails or saying sorry when really you mean thank you it's instead of, oh, I'm so sorry I'm late and it's like thank you for your patience it means the same thing you're expressing appreciation the same way but you're not yeah and and to the receiver minimizing yourself the yeah exactly so little tips and techniques like that um and also I think an increased sense of solidarity I guess that like, oh actually I can control what I say and do and direct towards others nice to be reminded of that because we stop reminding ourselves of that yeah. uh, or we stop being reminded of that around the same time we hit high school <laughs> or yes. maybe <laughs> through I don't know and and realistically I think that's probably when we need more reminding um, but just that yeah what you say and do does have consequences for other people so you know what kind of person do you want to be out in the world and and you can help others so that was probably probably some of the probably some of the dominant things which came out of the workshop and their realization of it was also really common to have women coming in going oh, I haven't experienced any kind of gendered discrimination or anything in my work and then they start telling stories and you can see the penny drop about halfway through and like, <laughs> oh my god and from the responses <laughs> to others like well now I'm just pissed off <laughs> So yeah, kind of bursting, bursting a few bubbles along the way. I think as well. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but that's yeah. that's a lot of it, isn't it? Because there's so much um, casualization of mm. all these behaviours that you take for granted when you are a recipient of it. You just go, oh, it's just one of those things. You, know, you just carry on, and then later on, when you actually reflect on the events, like, well, actually, yeah, that that was a problem. Probably didn't think about that at the time. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. these tiny little microaggressions. They're like little paper cuts again and again and again. And or you know the the frog in the boiling pot of water. It's you don't really notice it. It's happening so gradually until all of a sudden you realise that you're in deep trouble and you need to yes. get out of there. But yeah, similar kind of you know, dawning realisation, I suppose. <laughs> ah, I can just imagine some of those expressions and the people just having that moment going, "Oh my God, I really need to be upset about this." <laughs> It's like we're really sorry like it's have another biscuit <laughs> <laughs> yeah moments that you need to drink for <laughs> yeah so very interesting um are you continuing more of this sort of research or is it just expanding into other areas of how we can kind of work towards you know more inclusivity and more diversity 
Yeah, a lot of my work from them has started to spiral out into, so from those same workshops, we've literally just published another paper, which is specifically looking at the barriers to career progression of academic women in STEM. Um, but a, a lot of that, we're not, we're not saying anything new. It's stuff that everybody yeah. knows. Um, and so I think some of my work now is looking at, okay, we've described the problem from every conceivable angle and in every conceivable shade and hue, like let's start looking at it. How do you actually start fixing it? And so looking at what we are doing to address inequity in in the STEM disciplines, because I've got to put fences up somewhere, otherwise the work will never <laughs> um, But, you know, looking at the kinds of mechanisms, so things like role models, things like mentor programs, um, you know, workshops, all of these kinds of things, what do they actually achieve? What do they do to and for the people who participate? And then how can we actually change perceptions to help enable some of those broader policy and systemic changes at an organizational level. Um, so yeah, developing other kinds of workshops. Um, so you know, with a with a cohort um, across the ACT in New South Wales, as part of the Science in Australia Gender Equity, so SAGE um, network, we've developed an intersectionality walk where we give people personas and then we read out all of these different scenarios and they take a step out uh, if they're disadvantaged based on their scenario. And so you get people literally walking in the shoes of others and to understand how different identities can actually overlap and compound disadvantage for certain individuals. And so just really giving people that very practical, tangible other perspective of, oh, I've never seen it or conceived of it this way before. So yeah, I think very much now I'm shifting towards, okay, how do we fix this sucker? How does it, how do we actually make, make a dent? What can we do? So yeah, that's where I'm heading now. Yeah, that's brilliant. And like seeing all of these things, like the, uh, the walk, the being able to show people about where the disadvantages and trying to, you know, make people more aware about all these potential areas that were, you know, previously invisible to most people. Are these sorts of workshops and programs, um, how widespread are they or are they focused on specific groups? There are quite a few. So um, I was uh, the lead researcher for the um, Academy of Science Decadal Plan for Women in STEM. And one of the first things we did was look at, okay, what exists out there? And so we just sort of set the we wanted to have that gender focus because it was a plan for women in STEM. So we just looked at women. Um, but we managed to find, I think it was about 330 programs and initiatives across Australia. Uh, obviously we've missed a few, no net is perfect. Some holes are bigger than others. Um, but from all of these initiatives, fewer than seven had any kind of evaluation and fewer still had well, publicly available inf uh, evaluation and fewer still had any meaningful, rigorous evidence that what they did had any impact whatsoever. So we have lots of programs tailored to specific disciplines, to different cultural groups, to different career stages and ages and regions and you name it, we've got it. What we don't have is evidence of what works. 
And so yeah. that we're throwing money at this at these problems and these issues, but we're not actually exploring in any meaningful None way. None of it's measurable. Exactly. Yeah. Is this money well spent? I don't know. Just throw more at it. Okay, sure. We're making an effort. Mm. <laughs> yeah, just keep putting band-aids on it. It'll be fine. <laughs> From that kind of uh, I guess evaluation has there been any work done to try and you know create a system where it is a bit more measurable or you know yeah make it a bit certainly more a bigger push now the office of the ambassador for women in stem have put together an evaluation toolkit um, which provides uh, examples and guidelines and instructions and resources to help people who are interested or running these programs how to actually measure and find out what works so i think there's a growing realization and push now from both the community and the policy ends to go mm, actually yeah we, we need to pay closer attention to this will that attention be sustained i don't know i guess we'll find out it's kind of we part will. of what the plan is right <laughs> <laughs> well yes yeah so uh, it will be for the life of the decadal plan that's for sure but yeah after that <laughs> at least we're trying to make progress and exactly. you know, it, it's it's cool seeing that all of a lot of this stuff is done but you know there's so much of it out there like nobody really knows about it unless you're in the actual space so yeah it's good to hear about all these interesting initiatives it's great so from it might go on to some of those extra questions i had mentioned mm -hmm. uh what hobby interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work probably playing soccer yeah. <laughs> oh, soccer. Nice. Love it. Uh, I only started playing, like I played a little bit in high school um, and I think maybe once very casually in my, when I was about 20. And then yeah. so naturally yeah, when you turn 40, it's kind of like, yeah, let, let's go run around a field for a while and chase after a small round <laughs> white thing. Um, but I loved it. Lo absolutely love it. My team is fabulous. We have a lot of laughs. So, you know, we don't take ourselves too seriously. And if we don't laugh during a game, then we're just not playing it right. So, yeah. Yeah. Love it. That's awesome. So that's just local league? Yes. That's cool. Yeah. So how long have you been doing that for? Uh, coming into my third year now. So. Yeah, Ooh, not very long. Very nice. <laughs> not very long, but no, still enjoyable. I love it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? This is a really hard one to answer because I was an avid reader as a child and I still am. Like, it, that's my that's my escape. I The last thing I'll do every single day is read a book before I go to sleep. Nice. Um, I used to love... The Enid Blyton books, so like the Magic Wishing Chair and the Faraway yep. Tree, like they were fantastic. Um, I really liked the, I guess the fantasy of it and the creativity and the imagination, like the visual images you'd be able to get, and you'd be yes. able to, yeah, picture Moonface and all of these things. I know. And try and imagine what all the different foods would taste like. Um, oh yes, definitely. That was one of my hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> And then I guess probably one of my favourite books ever, although I cry every single time I read it, is Watership Down. Ah, oh, yes. love it. A story told by rabbits, and you think, hmm, this could go one of two ways, but I just, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty gut wrenching there. Like it, I remember seeing the animated series for that, and that was like, oh my goodness, this is awful. <laughs> yeah, such a beautiful story, but no, it's just such a horrible kind of 
yeah, really makes you think about things. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of things. So yeah, no, that was. I still love reading it every now and again, with a box of yeah. tissues. <laughs> yes, with a box of tissues, definitely. <laughs> and lastly, what advice would you give someone who'd like to do what you do, and what advice should they ignore? Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, maybe you, you could ignore this advice if you wanted. Um, I would probably say if you want to start working in science communication, simply start communicating science. Like communication is a muscle and it, the more you use it, the stronger it gets and your communication is always going to be a work in progress. Um, so, you know, if you, if you really like doing podcasts, then do a podcast. If you really like writing, start writing, but go into it knowing who you want to talk to and, and what you want to achieve. So a lot of people say, oh, you know, I just, I want to talk to the public. That's great. But you know, the public's everyone aged from three to 103. <laughs> what do you actually want to achieve with this? So um, go in with a really clear idea of, of who you want to talk to and what you want your communication to actually do. So I think, I think if you're going in to any kind of communication or engagement role with no desire other than anything to, but to hear your own voice or see your own picture, that's probably a bit, bit of an exercise in vanity rather than communication. <laughs> um, so yeah, definitely, uh, just try it, get involved with things like National Science Week, the Australian Science Communicators um, are, have a national network and there's, there's networks throughout um, you know, pretty much every region around the world. Um, yeah, get involved, come and, do a, come and do a course with CPAS at the ANU. We offer everything online. Um, <laughs> so yeah, get a little bit of the, the theoretical underpinning of it as well. So that way you can really start to explore you know, why people react to ideas and information the way that they do. And um, yeah, I think, I don't know, I just explore, have fun. And if you don't enjoy it, stop. <laughs> I think probably the, probably the advice that you can most ignore in any kind of career is um, you need to know what you want to do. You need to have a plan. Yeah, I, every plan I made, fell apart or got shifted onto a different track and sometimes sometimes you just have to trust that you're going to end up in the right spot so don't keep doing something if you hate it just follow what you enjoy and you know work for a living rather than live for work yeah definitely well gotta enjoy what you do life's too short <laughs> it is so you know when you were like you know trying to figure out what you wanted to do and going through and trying all these things did you look for anything specific or was it just you know let's have a look at this let's pick up the paper at random like kind of what were your thought processes when you were looking at your options for a lot of my honors it was like dear god do I really want to finish this what else is out there get me out <laughs> <laughs> and then after that uh yeah like seeing seeing the ad for for the science communication degree was pure serendipity, pure chance. I was just, I was looking at jobs in general just to see what was out there. Um, and when I first started in science communication, you didn't ever see science communicator as 
you know, wanted. It was um, a communication officer, or uh, and, and it's it's gone through some evolution since then. So you've got your knowledge brokers, um, yeah, your engagement officers, and, and all these kinds of things. So really, it's about. I guess for me, what I've tried to do since then is to find organisations that align with my core values. So who I am as a person, what I what I want to achieve, um, and the mark I want to make on the world, um, and the contribution, and actually, you know, find an organisation that fits that in me first and foremost, and and a job that will enable me to to do that so if i'm working on something that i feel personally strongly about as well as professionally then that's pretty much been it i think yeah i've this is the longest as an academic this is the longest i have ever stayed in the one job normally i do something for a year learn it and then i might do it for another year and go yep okay got it now bored next <laughs> so <laughs> um i guess academia in many ways it allows me to have a lot more variety than i've had in other roles um but there's i think there's always still a part of me that's like mm, what do i want to be when i grow up so i think yeah <laughs> just i'm just kind of you're curious and open and if the right opportunity comes along then throw your hat in the ring you never know yeah definitely got to give it a shot yeah Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today, Marin. It's been wonderful speaking to you about your journey and about your work and being reminded, I guess, about all the things that affect the way that we look at ourselves and the way that people look at us. It's definitely a lot of food for thought. <laughs> so if people want to learn more about what you do, where can they go? Well, you can Google me. I know I turn up. <laughs> so uh, I am at the ANU, at the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, or you can find me on Twitter at Mesmuk. Um, <laughs> but again, yeah, if you Google me, you should find me. It's yeah, Excellent. not the world's most common name, so I have that working for me. Yeah, that definitely works for you. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much again for today. It's been absolutely wonderful. And... Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing all the other work that you're doing in this space. It's just so much, so much to do. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks so much, Michelle. Okay, great. And have a wonderful day. Thanks, you too. I admit it was a little bit meta to speak about the perceptions of women in STEM who communicate about their work on a show about women in STEM who are communicating about their work. But Meryn's paper did prompt a lot of thought about what we do in this space. And not only how others perceive us, but how we perceive each other and ourselves and the sorts of things that we can do about that. To learn more about Merin and what we discuss on the show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also find out more about Merin on her ANU profile and on Twitter at Mezmuk or M-E-Z-M-C-K, the links of which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.